Wild in the City, exploring how a deeper connection with nature helps an urban city thrive. Hi, I'm Jim Newberry. And I'm Janet Wells. We're with Environment Sandy Springs, and we're your neighbors. So today, we're going to be talking about biodiversity in an urban area. So we have with us today Dr. Chris Mowry. He is the Associate Professor and Ph.D. of Biology at Barry College. He teaches zoology, ecology, and conservation biology, but he is the founder of the Atlanta Coyote Project and has been conducting research on coyotes since 2002. And I would just like to add, uh, I know Chris, and uh, he also is a musician. He has a band called the Song Dogs. And Chris, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks for having me. It all sounds so impressive. I hope I can live up to it, you know. (laughs) But uh, yes, thanks for asking about the music part of my life, the Song Dogs. And coyotes, which I study, are known as song dogs. They uh, are very vocal animals, if any, m- many people know that about coyotes. Um, and in fact, the word coyote is from an Aztec word, Native American word, uh, meaning singing dog. So coyotes are, are very uh, active vocalizers. They're trying to keep in touch with family members uh, and tell rivals, this is my territory, stay out of it. So uh, because I study coyotes and because I have this band with my son and daughter-in-law, uh, we sort of hit on the name Song Dogs. So you can go to our website, thesongdogs.com, <laughs> and listen to some of our music. Love it. So uh, I'm going to jump right into some questions, Chris. Um, How does the environment play a critical role in the sustainability and resilience of urban cities? So when we look at biodiversity and and we look at what we call ecology, um, you know, one of the things that we're really interested in are so-called ecological services. Nature does a lot for us, and a lot of it we take for granted. It provides us with water. It provides us with oxygen. Um, It helps to control our temperature. So it helps to to control flooding. Uh, It it filters water for us. It helps to control pests in some instances. It does services like pollination, uh, decomposition. It provides recreation and, and mental health for us. So all of those things are... We call them ecological services. They are things that many people take for granted, but without a functioning, healthy ecosystem surrounding us, we lose a lot of those things that we take for granted, and we don't realize we've lost them until they're gone, until it's too late. Which animal populations are being stressed in in urban cities now in in 2023, and and what is the source of their, their stress? Yeah, so, you know, we can make this distinction between urban and and rural environments, but, you know, it's somewhat arbitrary. Um, You know, living organisms, of course, don't pay attention to boundaries. They don't read maps. You know, they go where they can and and 
so they're not confined by boundaries. You know, of course, some organisms are going to be better adapted to to so-called urban environments than others. Um, but the things that we look at that are are stressed, you know, in, in urban environments, but really anywhere, but particularly in urban environments. So insects, things that people don't really pay a whole lot of attention to, but insects are extremely important to us. The numbers of insects are, are drastically declining. And again, it's not some, most people think, oh, well, that's a good thing. Well, guess what? Insects act as pollinators. They're extremely important in our food supply. Uh, they do lots of other things. So insect populations, there are certainly things that insects do that we don't like. They can transmit disease. In some instances, they can be problematic, but, but some insects eat other insects. And so um, having a healthy insect population is important. And so those animals are under threat, particularly in urban environments. Birds, birds are, some birds, again, are very uh, resilient and can thrive in urban areas, but others cannot. Uh, I'll just give you an example, a bird that some people may be aware of, a whippoorwill or a Chuck Will's widow. These are two very uh, closely related species of bird. They're nocturnal. People know them. They're named because of the calls that they make. So a whippoorwill makes the call whippoorwill. Chuck Will's widow makes that. That's the sound that it's making. And I remember when I moved to Cobb County um, 20 years ago, sort of West Cobb County, um, and it was still relatively rural, uh, but it was rapidly being developed. And, and when we first moved into our neighborhood, we would hear these birds at night, beautiful sound. And they slowly but surely disappeared as, as more houses were being built. Um, and so, so there are certain species of birds. That's just one example, but certain species of birds that are threatened. Bats, amphibians, reptiles. So these kinds of animals in particular are stressed in urban environments. Yeah, okay. I see. It's sad, isn't well, it? I understand that half a million coyotes are killed every year and that there are wildlife killing contests in some states. Why is the coyote so unprotected? So the coyote has a very uh, checkered past, I guess. And so uh, we, we need to understand kind of the historical distribution of, of the coyote. We used to not have coyotes here in the southeast, and that's because we had red wolves. And the reason, and now we no longer have red wolves, and the reason why not is because we as humans wiped them out. We exterminated them. We killed them. We trapped them. We poisoned them. And so there really are no more red wolves in the wild except for about 30 animals in extreme coastal North Carolina. So what that did is it created a vacuum. And the coyote that was historically an animal that was west of the Mississippi River easily filled that vacuum. That was the only thing keeping them out was the red wolf. And once the red wolf was gone, the coyote easily moved in. Now, Coyotes can do very well in a wide variety of habitats, both in, in rural and urban. They are, are an animal that evolved on the plains, um, but they moved north. They moved west. They moved uh, east. And so they now reside throughout North America. And we have had, as humans, a, a, 
a long love-hate relationship with predators, particularly canid predators. And the coyote is a canid predator. It's related to the wolf. So we killed wolves, both red wolves and gray wolves. Why? Because we felt threatened by them. In some instances, they eat the same things that we eat, large prey items. Uh, and so we were fearful of them. But at the same time, the Fido, Rover, the dogs that we all love, they came from wolves. We domesticated them from wolves. So that's why I say we have kind of this love-hate relationship. Um, you know, some people just don't like predators, and coyotes are sort of an easy target. Um, and so they're wild animals. They can prey upon uh, small livestock and uh, in, in some instances. But um, so... Some people are just fearful of them. They have a bad reputation. And um, so as a result, they, they go after them and, and try to kill them. Didn't you uh, say, I went to a seminar of yours, that the, the coyote is now key species for, for environmental control, um, for population control. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so as I said before, the the we refer to an apex predator or, or a top predator. Um, and, and an apex predator is at the top of the food chain. And so we use the apex predator that used to be in the southeast was the red wolf. Again, we, we got rid of the red wolf. It's gone. Coyote moved in. And so now the coyote is essentially serving as the top or apex predator in southeastern ecosystems. Not exactly the same as a red wolf. It's a smaller animal. Its diet is broader. That's why it's so successful, um, because it can eat a lot of things. It can do very well around humans. But, but contrary to popular belief is that people think that predators are eating everything in sight and that the presence of a predator means that all other organisms are going to be eaten by that predator. And, and that's not the case. What a predator does is it, it's therapeutic. It is eating a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So it's generally, as far as prey species, it's targeting the weak prey, the sick prey. So it's, again, performing a service to us by, you know, as, as cruel as it may sound, it's eliminating those prey that, that are going to die anyway. Um, and so, and it's also keeping the numbers of prey down. Coyotes are primarily the, the animals that they eat are small mammals, rats, mice, chipmunks, squirrels. And without something to eat those animals, they're going to proliferate. They're going to, their population numbers are going to expand. And so we need predators to help control those animals that appear lower on the food chain. What is it that the public needs to know about coyotes? They're here to stay. They're here because of our actions. Um, again, they, well, they're here because we wiped out the red wolf. We have had an apex predator for millions of years in this part of the world. In fact, if we go back far enough to the, last, to the end of the last ice age, there are actually uh, fossilized remains of coyotes that have been found in the east. So coyotes were probably here tens of thousands of years ago, and then red wolves 
sort of drove them out. And then when we wiped out the red wolf, the coyote came in. So the presence of predators is not something to be feared. It's not something that we need to, as humans, control. They are parts of natural, healthy ecosystems. So something to be respected, but they're part of a healthy ecosystem. So part of a healthy ecosystem is a balance, correct? That is correct, a balance. Now, when we when we look at, at uh, what we call a food web or what is known as a trophic cascade, we generally look at it as a pyramid. And at the base of the pyramid, there are more of those. That's Those are the plants, the, the so-called producers. And then as we work our way up the pyramid, we get to the top, and that's where the apex predator resides. And there are fewer in number, and that's basic physics. That's because of the laws of thermodynamics. And I won't get into all of that, but it's just the way that energy flows. And so at the top of the pyramid, there are fewer individuals, and that's where the coyote resides. Is, and is that why we had on March 22nd, 2023, a National Coyote Day? I mean, do they? Does... Well, yes, we did have a National Coyote Day. And, and, you know, that's just to draw attention to the fact that, you know, these animals um, do have a function, a role in our ecosystems. They evolved. They're, they're endemic. As we say, they're native to North America. Some people will say they're not native to the southeast. But again, as I have described, they're here because they naturally filled the void that we created by the loss of the red wolf. I think that's great news. You know, people, I even lost a cat, and they're all worried that, you know, they're out to get your little pets. But I, I see now how vital they are, and I really appreciate the research you have done, Chris, on all the coyotes. Thank you. They deserve a national holiday. Chris, what are the threats to the Earth's biodiversity? I'd like to jump back into biodiversity. Well, sadly, the list is long, uh, unfortunately, but uh, I'll tell you what the threats are, but they're not mutually exclusive. They are interrelated, and they're somewhat synergistic, meaning they kind of feed off of one another. Certainly, climate change is one of the number one threats to biodiversity, and it can occur in, in dramatic ways, in very obvious ways, but it's, it's really in the less obvious ways. I'll give you an example. Is One of the effects of climate change is so-called changes in phenology, and by that I mean the timing of natural events. So when spring flowers occur, for example. Uh, so, you know, we had really warm January and February, except for that one cold snap, I think it was in early January, maybe it was even late December, but it was really pretty warm in January and February. And then March, it got cold again, and we see a lot of that. And, and what happens is, is it disrupts the natural rhythms of things, particularly with plants, for example. So the plants are, are fooled. They have natural rhythms that they have evolved over eons. And so what happens is it warms up and the plants think, okay, it's time for me. Spring is here. I'm going to start flowering. And then, uh-oh, it turns cold again. And then that kills the flowers That and now the plant is suffering. I'll just give you another quick example is Georgia is, I believe, the number one producer of blueberries in North America, in, in, in the United States. And blueberry 
farmers, the blueberry uh, crop has been devastated several times over the last 10 years because of this very thing. Blueberry plants start to blossom, then a cold snap comes in, kills them, and then that devastates the crop. Same thing with the citrus crop. Part of that is natural changes in weather, but that's not what we're talking about here is, is weather patterns. We're talking about climate change, changes that are occurring because of human-induced problems, human-induced activities. So, so climate change is the number one threat. But habitat loss, over-harvesting, over-exploitation, Habitat degrade, uh, degradation. So the habitat doesn't necessarily need to, to be completely destroyed. The habitat can just simply be degraded. Uh, a, a common way that that happens is something called fragmentation. We carve up the habitat and we make it difficult for species to move from one remnant habitat patch to another. So that's called fragmentation. Invasive species, disease, Unfortunately, the list goes on and on. But as I say, many of these things are, are interrelated to one another. Chris, are, are, do, do any crossing structures for wildlife exist in Georgia's urban cities? So it depends, again, on, on the species. So we might think of a, of a wildlife, wildlife crossing structure as being, you know, some sort of a bridge over a highway we don't have those in Georgia. Uh, the closest one that I'm aware of is being constructed in the Smoky Mountains. There's something called the I-40 Pigeon River Gorge Wildlife Crossing Project. Really great thing that's going on in the Smoky Mountains. It's, it's going to be a bridge essentially over I-40 in the Pigeon River Gorge. Uh, it's designed mainly for, for mammals like black bears, elk, coyotes, deer, you know, smaller mammals are going to be able to use that, but there are smaller animals, you know, that we need to think about as well um, that need to get from one place to another. A real disruption is culverts. Culverts are those things that where we go in and we're developing and we dig up a stream and then we put a pipe and run it under the street and we say, oh, we've solved the problem. You know, we've created, we put the stream back the way it was. We built a culvert. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't always work. The culvert gets clogged up. Uh, the culvert becomes essentially an impediment for the movement of fish. Um, so there are all kinds of things that can create disruptions in the movement patterns of organisms. So, you know, we can think of, of you know, something big and dramatic like a wildlife crossing bridge, and that's all well and good. Extremely expensive, extremely logistically difficult to construct, as you can imagine. But there are smaller things that we can do, like paying attention to, to culverts, for example, building those kinds of things properly. So you're not cutting up the stream. You're allowing the stream to flow naturally. Chris, is there anyone that's working on developing these types of culverts, i.e., if you will, a kit that you could put in under a road or? Yeah, there there are people that are working on it, uh, Jim. You know, as you can imagine, though, it's, a, it's an engineering uh, undertaking. Um, so it has to be done, you know, properly. It has to be done uh, it's it's not cheap. It might look you know like it's a fairly easy fix, but it has to be done 
at the beginning, you know, with consultation with structural and civil engineers, um, you know, with wildlife biologists, the, the Nature Conservancy, for example, um, is working on some of these kinds of things. They've done so in sort of the northwestern parts of Georgia, uh, just outside this, of Atlanta. Um, but, but again, it takes a team effort to build these kinds of things. You can't, it's not something, you know, normally that the average citizen is just going to go out and, 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 you know, as much as they'd like to uh, try to rectify the problem, it's got to be done properly. Well, I just so happen to have a culvert. Um, there's a creek, they call them blue line creeks uh, in front of my house. And uh, we thought that was a good thing. Uh, and is there any way to have it checked to see, because I know many people have this sort of thing, you know, if their house uh, is next to a creek. So what what could I do about it? Yeah, Janet, a good question. I mean, first and foremost, the thing to do is look at the stream, look at the creek. And, you know, the culvert is just kind of, no pun intended, it's further downstream. You know, really what we're talking about here is, and, and this is where the problem comes in, is that as we build and we pave, we create what is called impervious substrate. Uh, so building the roofs of buildings, paved parking lots, roads, all of these things, rainwater falls down, it hits the ground, it doesn't have anywhere to go, it can't percolate into the soil, and so it runs along that impervious substrate. It goes down a storm drain, maybe, goes down a storm drain, and by the time it hits the creek, it's a raging, rushing current of water that has picked up all of the pollutants that are on the roof of the building or the road or the gasoline, oil, anything like that, pesticides. It's the temperature has been raised and the velocity of the flow has been increased. So now rather than gradually making its way back into the stream, this water that has fallen as precipitation, it's now being discharged back into the stream as a raging, rushing current when it rains. So the thing to do is next time there's a heavy rain, and I think we have rain coming this weekend, go out and look at your stream. Is it a raging, massive torrent of water? That's not good. It's going to scour out the creek, and that's not good for any species that live in that creek. It's going to create higher temperatures. It's going to, there's going to be uh, less oxygen. It's going to disrupt the substrate on the bottom of the creek. And some of this stuff is going to wash into the culvert and it's going to gouge it out and it might even clog up the culvert. So the culvert might get, you know, clogged or partially clogged or something like that. So the problem really develops back earlier when the water is falling from the sky and, and how is it getting into the creek? That's the issue. Right. Chris, can I ask about point source solutions for runoff? Yes. So, you know, we're talking about trying to deal with the rainwater or the precipitation as it falls from the sky. So, so what are we going to do about that? You know, it's got to go somewhere. You know, we do, we live in urban environments. And so, again, this is working with, you know, landscape architects, with structural engineers, with, you know, uh, you know, civic engineers and, and trying to, to deal with 
how are we going to deal with that rainwater that's falling? And so can we create more pervious substrates? So, for example, gravel parking lots. Can we plant vegetation on the roofs of buildings? Um, you know, can we create islands of vegetation along side uh, streets where the rainwater falls and doesn't just gush down a storm drain, but slowly percolates back into the soil. So there are lots of really great solutions that are not only good for the environment, but they're aesthetically pleasing as well. And so it, it again, but, you know, there are experts out there that are, that are designed to do this, you know, and this is where, again, uh, landscape architects and structural engineers come into play. I have to say that I'm proud of, of uh, Sandy Springs government when they built the new city hall, and it's a wonderful ca campus. They plan those kinds of little vegetations to absorb the runoff, and it's beautiful. It adds so much to it. Yeah. And it, and it does so much, yes. So how can citizens get involved on a local level to solve these uh, biodiversity problems, these increasing problems? There are certainly active ways. And, and you know, people might think, well, I, you know, do I have to go out and save the whales myself? You know, what, what am I going to do? And, and, and it doesn't need to be that daunting. Um, and so I think first and foremost, it's become educated and become just sort of a steward, a responsible steward of the environment. So by that, I mean, don't indiscriminately spray pesticides. You know, we see all people, we see these signs that are going to start going up around neighborhoods, you know, that are saying about, I, you know, I'm spraying for mosquitoes. Um, I'm, you know, using a uh, a leaf blower, and I'm going to blow every scrap of vegetation out of my driveway. You know, um, all of these things have people may th not think that it's doing much, but it's causing problems. It's leading to loss of biodiversity. Um, the the indiscriminate spraying of pesticides. You know, where do those pesticides go? Well, they're killing non-target. You know, maybe you're spraying for mosquitoes, but guess what? Other animals are being impacted by those things. So, you know, then controlling storm runoff, as I was saying, you know, um, preserving old trees, you know, planting trees, proper culvert uh, construction, just being a responsible citizen. You know, when you see trees being taken down, ask questions. You know, if, if, if a development is going on, we have so-called stream buffer laws in this state. Unfortunately, they've been reduced to now 25 feet, if I'm not mistaken. So if nobody's asking questions, if nobody's watching, uh, you know, then, then what's the incentive, uh, you know, for a developer to, to you know, for enforcement, you know, or, or to, to play by the rules? So just being educated, you know, about environmental issues, being a responsible homeowner, a responsible steward of the environment, um, again, being scientifically literate, uh, understanding, you know, let's take the politics out of climate change, you know, let, let's talk about what does what does it mean? You know, people are are arguing about it and and don't understand, you know, what it's all about. Um, it's not a political issue. You know, let let's just talk about it. Let's become more informed. Coyotes. I hate coyotes. Well, let's talk a little bit about them. You know, so 
I think that's the best thing is to become educated and you don't have to preach to your neighbors, but help them to become informed as well. Correct. So um, how do we bring everyone to the table, like the developers, the landscape designers, the architects? How do we create a dialogue where we can discuss these things? Well, I had a, I was really encouraged, um, and it was it was right before the COVID pandemics, un- unfortunately. So, but uh, I belong. The Atlanta Coyote Project. We are part of a consortium called the Urban Wildlife Information Network. You win, and it's based out of Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And this is a group of scientists from across North America, and now even some European cities. And, and these are all essentially urban wildlife biologists. And so there was a conference. It was held in Chicago um, at the Lincoln Park Zoo over three days. And so, you know, you got all of these biology, ecology, wildlife biology kinds of people. But we were all asked to recommend people outside of that field, perhaps in landscape architecture or, again, structural engineering, civic engineering. And so some of these people were invited. And so, it, so for example, we brought someone from Georgia Tech with us who was great. And they talked of all about their research on how temperature heat islands, how cities are heat islands, and that, you know, they are because of the loss of trees, because of, you know, this impervious structure, buildings, all of these things. I'm sure most of your listeners are aware is that it's a lot hotter in the cities in most instances. And so these meetings that I'm referring to in Chicago back in 2019, just really great discussions between biologists, ecologists, landscape architects, structural engineers, and, and really everybody's on the same page. Um, you know, society wants these kinds of things. Um, people want to get involved. So it, it's a matter of, I guess, you know, pressuring local governments to do, Janet, as you said, uh, you know, Sandy Springs built a great facility that was, you know, environmentally conscious uh, about trying to deal with stormwater, for example. So there are solutions out there, but it takes a team effort. It takes, you know, talking to people in power to try to make these decisions early on in construction phases, for example. Yeah. Chris, you being a professor, what do you notice the students today are most concerned about when it relates to the environment? They're concerned about climate change, um, for sure. Uh, I, I teach a course, as you said, called conservation biology. I enjoy teaching the class, but on the first day of class, I say, you know, I say, I hope you're going to learn a lot, but I'm going to be honest with you, it's going to be depressing um, because there there are lots of things that we talk about, you know, that are that are issues that are facing, you know, I'm addressing, you know, 18 to 21 year olds, and I'm saying to them, you know, these are problems that are certainly going to be facing your generation. You're you're being faced with them right now, and they're only going to become more pronounced. And so climate change is certainly one of those um, most pressing issues, I think, that you know, and, and of course it's controversial, and of course not everyone ag- agrees about it, but I can say from, from my perspective as a, you know, someone who teaches that course, uh, it is of great concern to students. Everything I've read says that uh, climate change is real. I think the scientists are, are 95% behind that idea. 
Right. And it's not, um, you know, once you start getting into the science of it, it it's really not that um, controversial. It's, it's not that hard to understand. And, and I will also say, though, one of the things that's, that's difficult for people to grasp is that the effects of climate change are more pronounced as we move towards the poles, towards the North Pole and the South Pole. We don't live in the Arctic and regions, you know. So, yes, we see impacts of climate change, but go live up in Alaska, you know, go live in Iceland. You're going to see more pronounced effects going on, and uh, it's scary, you know, what's going on. It's happening rapidly. We may be somewhat insulated from it, not completely, but it's happening um, and, and again, just because of where we live, we may not see some of these uh, ramifications as dramatically as people in other parts of the world do. Yeah, especially on the coastlines. I mean, they're starting to see it for sure. Certainly, as well, in coastal areas as well, due to, to sea level rise and more intense storms and things like that, for certain. Well, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners that you consider most important to pay attention to? Well, you know, Jim had asked me a question earlier, maybe it was uh, over, you know, in, in a text, but it was asking about various rewilding. Maybe we could end on a positive note and, and rewilding um, efforts in Georgia. And the news is not all grim. And that's what I tell my students is that, yes, we have lots of, of challenges, but we live in this incredible planet. Um, and here in the southeast, that's something else that Jim asked me about, is that we're very close to the southern Appalachian ecosystem. This is one of the world's most high areas of biodiversity. So, And we live in this city, Atlanta, the city of trees. You know, we live in this, in this beautiful place. We have the Chattahoochee River, you know, flowing through. So there's a, <laughs> there's a lot to be uh, encouraged about. We have this wonderful planet that we all share, you know, but I was just going to mention a few things about rewilding in Georgia. I'm here at Barry College, just in, in Rome, Georgia, and Barry's known for sitting on 26,000 acres of, of land. And uh, we have several projects going on here. One of them is we have uh, a population of longleaf pine. And longleaf pine used to be the predominant pine tree in the southeast, decimated. We have a remnant population of, of longleaf pine, and it's a majestic pine tree. It's long-lived. It grows very tall. It creates wonderful timber. More importantly is the habitat that is associated with longleaf pine promotes a high level of biodiversity. It does require fire to maintain it, and so there's some active management that needs to go on where you have to periodically burn, which, which we do, but... There's really cool species that go along with that. So, and it's thanks to my colleague, Martin Cipollini, who uh, here at Barry, he's been responsible for that. He's also working on another project where trying to reintroduce, reintroduce the American chestnut tree. American chestnuts were devastated by a fungal blight 100 years ago. Um, and we're, he and his students are working along with the American Chestnut Foundation at trying to, to rewild the southeast with chestnut trees. Sea turtles at the coast, red cockaded woodpeckers, monarch butterflies, uh, gopher tortoises. These are all species that are 
being conserved here in Georgia. The Okefenokee Swamp, you asked about what people can do. Speak out about saving the Okefenokee Swamp. It is an incredible resource that is here in our state, and, and we don't want to lose that. So we have this incredible you know, biodiversity, these incredible ecosystems that, that are that we are privileged, you know, to have around us. So, so I encourage people to work to, to conserve those. So, Chris, another question is, how do we know about the types of biodiversity that are in our urban areas? Well, technology has really improved so much, and uh, we take great advantage of it. And so, as I mentioned earlier, we're part of a consortium called the Urban Wildlife Information Network. And so we have cameras all around the city of Atlanta, uh, including in your backyard, Jim. Thank you very much. And, uh, and so we use these cameras, and, and when I say cameras, these are wildlife cameras. They're remotely operated an animal walks in front of the camera and the, the heat body temperature of the animal triggers and also the motion can trigger the camera. So we see all kinds of things on these cameras because they're on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, they're hidden. Uh, the animal doesn't know that it's there. Usually people don't know they're there, but we try to put them in places where there aren't people. And so these cameras uh, we call it sort of peering into the secret lives of animals because it can tell us so much. And we're always just amazed at what kinds of wildlife is out there that people would really be surprised uh, to know are in literally in these in their backyard, in green spaces, you know, using these parts of the city. And, and if people are interested, you can go to our website, atlantacoyoteproject.org, uh, there are all kinds of videos on there. There's a, you can stream a program called Georgia Outdoors. It was one on PBS. This one was specifically about urban coyotes, but it shows lots of the other forms of wildlife that we get. So if anybody's interested, they can see that. And Chris, just uh, for every all our listeners, could you just run through some names of the species that you have run across? And has there ever been a bobcat? Just want to know in in the urban areas in the backyards. Yes, there are bobcats out there. There are bobcats. There are coyotes. There are minks. Of course, raccoons, possum, white-tailed deer, uh, river otters, uh, flying squirrels, eastern gray squirrels. Of course, chipmunks. Wonderful bird life. Uh, all kinds of of, of great birds. Uh, again, reptiles. You know. Turtles, snapping turtles, box turtles, uh, various snakes. So just a, a wonderful array of species that we have in this state. Awesome. One last question is uh, talk to me about how biodiversity can happen on even small parcels of land, because that's something we often face in a city. That's right. So there has been recent uh, there, there have been, been recent scientific publications, and in fact, this is what a lot of our work with the Atlanta Coyote Project deals with. Yes, we are interested in coyotes, but we're interested in coyotes in a more big-picture way. So coyotes is part of the overall ecosystem. And so we're very interested in looking at, 
at green space around the city of Atlanta, which, again, we're fortunate to have lots of this kind of green space. It's along the corridor, of course, of the Chattahoochee River. It's what makes up the Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area. But it, it's not just there. And it doesn't have to just be you know, land set aside for as a nature preserve, you know, golf courses, parks, people's backyards. Again, we are the city of trees. And so we are seeing high levels of biodiversity in these areas. Um, so, so yeah, even small areas can be, can serve as islands of habitat for a great number of species. People would be surprised what's out literally in their own backyards. And Jim, you know that because we've worked in your backyard. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on Wild in the City. Uh, we loved having you and hope to talk with you again soon. Thank you for having me and uh, great work that you all are doing in Sandy Springs. So, uh, so keep up the good work and uh, thank you for partnering with the Atlanta Coyote Project. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, take care. This podcast is sponsored by Environment Sandy Springs. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode wherever you get your podcast or see it on our website, environment-sandysprings.org. Until, Until next time, time cheers! cheers.